This is the Tom Baker Show. Lenny Batiki has joined us on the program today, and uh, many people know Lenny as the voice of PRN's At The Track, which airs on the Performance Racing Network uh, around the country on about uh, 70, I think, uh, affiliates, radio affiliates, uh, and also, of course, on all of PRN's digital properties and podcast platforms, respectively, but there's way more to Lenny Batiki than that, and uh, that is what we're going to uh, deep dive talk about today here on the Tom Baker Show. And uh, Lenny, it is a pleasure to have you on. Appreciate you coming on the show and uh, helping us kind of kickstart uh, this this podcast. Uh, one thing right off the bat that I uh, have discovered about you that I didn't know is that you originally started as a BMX racer. I had no idea you'd done any racing at all. Uh, talk about, is that your introduction to the sport? That's uh, That was my introduction to uh, competition events. Yes, definitely. Okay. Uh, I had gone to drag races uh, as a younger kid and um, you know watched David Pearson and Richard Petty on Wide World of Sports down in Florida, but wasn't a, uh, a you know a short track uh, racer kid or anything else right. like that but BMX had a, a lot of crossover to it uh, a lot of the uh, kids that you know raced and we even raced um, on makeshift tracks at uh, you know places all over the country uh, we raced on the dirt at Flemington um, we raced in turn four at Charlotte Motor Speedway and uh, oh, wow. some different tracks around the country that were uh, you know just uh, one-offs uh, back in the heyday in the 70s and early 80s of BMX, and it gave me an idea of marketing, of professional um, sports in general, uh, of travel, how to be able to go from race to race, uh, how to wear a helmet, how to wear a, a suit, and make sure that it looks good for sponsors, deal with them. So the transition to motorsports was relatively easy. It was just louder. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the things that uh, drivers do, we had to do as uh, factory-backed riders. Um, it'd be like taking, uh, you know, uh, Eli Tomac. And, yeah, he could transition right over to a, an auto racer because he understands the business side of it and what it takes to be a competitive athlete. He just hasn't uh, wheeled the race car. But I've gone into a corner side-by-side, elbow-to-elbow, uh, elbows up in the car terms yeah. with uh, other racers. Had to uh, hope that the uh, the knobbies stuck on the track and able to pull it out and all the rest of the grit and the feeling that you get with a race car, except not doing it um, you know, in a race car, but doing it in another form of competitive um, you know, wheeled sport, if you will. So that's how we, we started, had a, had a great time doing that, and then transitioned over to be an announcer um, in the sport. But before we even go any further into that, congratulations, Tom Baker Show. What a cool deal. You are going to bring so much to the sport and open up so many eyes and ears. I, I just hope I don't stumble uh, and, and slow you up on the way. Oh, I uh, I think uh, quite the opposite. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Uh, you know, looking forward to taking 35 years of uh, experience and passion and uh, having some fun with it here on this show. Uh, so you ended up getting 
injured. Now, you it says on your bio, a high school shoulder injury. Did you fall down the stairs going to math class, or what exactly happened there? No, I, uh, you know, back in the day, they taught you uh, PE class, and oh, yeah. uh, it happened to be uh, PE week of high school wrestling. Now, I was very far from high school wrestling. I might have played Dusty Rhodes a time or two, <laughs> but uh, certainly wasn't in the Greco-Roman style. Yeah. And, um, you know, first day out, uh, separated my shoulder, you know, just uh, didn't know how to fall uh, in that sense. And um, that really set the uh, the racing side, the competitive side back for me. The injury just uh, never seemed to be uh, right in the way I used to do things. And especially during the uh, transition time of shoulder surgeries and things like that, I was still going to races and still representing sponsors. I just couldn't get out there and, and pedal. So I wandered over and became an announcer because somebody had, had an opportunity to do it, wanted to go to the bathroom, wanted to, you know, just not. <laughs> And uh, I thought it'd be fun to try to play like Gordon Soley, uh, my wrestling announcer hero. And, uh, you know, slowly started having people think that that was a really cool thing. And uh, lo and behold, uh, ended up uh, with a career that has lasted, you know, ever since. See, I'm more of a mean Gene Okerlund guy myself. but uh, You really are. I good. see the mean Gene in oh, you. Yeah. I mean, know, uh, you got to open up uh, that Soley was worms, a Florida you know? guy, so that's where I grew up and watching him and Jack Briscoe on Saturdays was uh, just regular stuff for me. Yeah, it was. Wrestling was fun back then. It was a lot of fun. Uh, okay, so you ended up being, I, I gotta, you gotta tell us the story on this. Um, you ended up becoming rated as the world's best BMX announcer in 1985. Now, how does one exactly, and what credentials, and what what does one have to actually do to be rated as the world's best BMX announcer? Was that award given by like your your best friend or your mom or who actually? Where where does how does this get determined? It was one of the uh, BMX publications magazines uh, that really? they sold at wow. the time. I think there was two or three of them. Uh, but this one was the one that always seemed to come up with the top 10 list, the best of list. And uh, they did a best of list in 85. And I, at the time, had become the only announcer to uh, they, they did had dual sanctions. So if you're a late model person um, in, in the pavement world, it'd be like having the past series and the car series, having the ability to have the same announcer in both because he could transition both where usually you don't. Um, and I was able to do that. And Mongoose Bicycles uh, sponsored a lot of events, and they hired me on a personal services to be able to go to all of their events. And that bridged a lot of gaps and opened a lot of doors and a lot of eyes and ears to what I was doing. So, um, you know, the magazines took notice of it. And um, in 85, uh, on one of those lists, they did, uh, you know, my picture and best announcer and uh I, you know just uh cringe when i say it but they said a moto mouth without equal <laughs> that <laughs> year that's so uh like you that. know it was a lot of fun and um i i loved being able to translate what i saw um to voice and to make it exciting to the fans listening because i knew it from the competition yeah. side and was able to share with them what i saw the subtleties through announcing and I, I think that was my favorite part. Yeah, it's uh, I, I love announcing. I've done it a long time, and I can completely understand. It's a challenge to be able to be the eyes 
for people. I don't think a lot of people understand that when you're doing TV, TV's okay. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's also easier because you have something to look at and the, the viewers have the visual and then you're just trying to basically explain it and, and kind of hype it up with radio or any kind of audio. When you're, when you're calling a race that way, or even if you're doing it at the track and you're calling it live, um, you're literally describing what's going on. And I think there's just a purity about it that, that for me is just more fun than doing television, though I enjoy doing both. Is, is that the case for you as well? Yeah, I really break it down into three different languages because the television is fantastic. The platform is there, but you only announce what you can see in the box you're allowed right. to see yeah. as the talent for the most part. Uh, you, you may be able to see a big flipping wreck fire, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of things out beyond it. But if it's not on that little box that the viewers the around monitor. wherever yeah. are seeing, yeah. then you can't talk about it until they get a camera on that right. subject. So that that language is very boxy and restrictive. And you have to be, um, you know, you're, you're at the whim of what uh, the producer provides you. Radio is a blind audience. So we, we can make, uh, you know, anything sound, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more picturesque, if you will, uh, in that. Um, but we do have to be more colorful and more descriptive and give more of a scene set. The, the tightrope act is making somebody who is looking at the exact same thing you are at the exact same time at the exact same place feel even more excited than they are looking at it, lifting the event up in their eyes and then feeling the reflective response of the fans giving you energy back. And uh, I, that, that kind of hype was uh, just the adrenaline I love to be able to uh, hear people um, cheer, to hear them laugh, to hear them feel uh, the sport in ways that maybe their mind was saying, but I could now motivate an emotion out of them. And uh, to really be able to lift it like that was uh, it's the biggest part of announcing for me is PA uh, announcer. There's no better, uh, more fun than that. I enjoy that too. Exactly right. Um, okay, this episode being brought to you today by My Computer Career, which is training for a better life. If you're looking for a new career, My Computer Career's IT training might be your answer. Just go to their website. They have a free career evaluation you can take if you decide to pursue the training. You can train one to two days a week. That's it. One to two days a week online. You don't even have to go to a campus. You can train one to two days a week online. Financial aid is available for those who qualify, including the GI Bill, and you can be ready for your new position and new career in as little as four to six months. That's it. It's quick. It's simple. And the folks from my computer career are as much mentors as they are trainers. They really want you to succeed. When you're ready to enter the workforce, they have hundreds of employers that they will work with in order to get you placed. You can't lose here. MyComputerCareer.edu. It is training for a better life. Our guest today is Lenny Batiki. We've been talking about Lenny's BMX career, abbreviated though it was as a uh, competitor, and this was his entryway into what he does now, which is uh, just being the voice of PRNs at the track and also working at Charlotte Motor Speedway and in other capacities uh, behind the microphone, a job that he does so well. Uh, you 
we'll advance a little bit here. You started announcing drag races in South Florida, which I think is really cool. And then you had your first opportunity for PRN in October of 1989. What was it like the first time? Because that's a bucket list for me. I've always wanted to to work a race on PRN or MRN. I've always wanted to do that. Um, not sure I want to do it like regularly, but I've always wanted to do it at least on a part-time basis. And I want to understand what it's like. What was it like for you? How intimidating was it the first time that you got a chance knowing that this is, you know, a, a national race and it's a pretty big deal. Well, for me, the 89 internship meant that if you remember back in those days, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, you know, any of the no, stuff I think that it was more uh, fun, we <laughs> have now. So Charlotte used to have to print uh, mid-race rundowns. There was all kinds of printed material in the media center, all kinds of things like that. I didn't get to touch a microphone unless I was carrying it for somebody. I was the, the guy that ran from turn one down to what is now a refreshment stand, but was the... Um, media center back in those days and got in line with anybody else that was waiting and got the rundown for mid-race. I would get three copies. And I know uh, Steve Richards and Pat Patterson were two of the three on pit road and maybe they only oh had my. two. And then I had to run back and give them that about the, about the time I got of that, I had to turn around and go back because the next rundown would be coming or they wanted information <laughs> about, you know, something and back and forth. I went, so I got a lot of steps in that day. And, and learned a lot that weekend about the behind the scenes. So that's a, a pretty successful internship. I didn't trip. I didn't fall. I think I, I, I even had a chance to, uh, you know, I had a dollar a piece probably back then buy those guys ice cream. And just that was, you know, like, oh, kid, <laughs> you're so great. You know, thanks for bringing an ice cream on a warm day. And um, so I did that. Now you want to transition to the when I got the microphone at well, PRN hang on, hang, for hang a real a broadcast. Hold that was a couple a months ago at Bristol. So I've had the longest motorsports <laughs> internship in history from 89 to 2021. I finally got to hold a PRN mic and actually speak on it at a NASCAR race. There you go. I, I love how uh, you made a special note to point out that your duties uh, at the October NASCAR race in 89 we're running pit notes and cold drinks to the pit reporters so you are what uh bill belichick would call a slappy that's what you were back then <laughs> basically you were an errand boy the, the truth is coming out here you started way at the bottom and look where you are now you're all the way at the top you got your own show they actually let you be on prn and you're a real celebrity now uh, I, I, I don't know whether I'm, I'm much more than a slappy, but, uh, you know, I've survived enough and uh, maybe they felt sorry enough for me that, um, you know, we've been able to do it. But I, I'm having a great time being now, um, you know, a, a different eyes and ears for uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway, SMI and PRN into the grassroots where it just feels like my days of uh, touring and racing bikes. The, the people are out there working their tails off and the small communities that have these grassroots tracks, whether they're paved or dirt, um, you know, support them there. It just has such a fun feel. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the big time I I've been able to be there a time or two uh, on some things, but uh, I think I'm really back in, in where I feel most down home. 
Well, it, it certainly appears that way to us, Lenny. We just uh, we love your work and uh, definitely uh, are excited about what you're doing now. Um, I want to skip ahead a little bit because you did some some uh, PR work and marketing work for Rockingham in the 90s and different things like that, uh, announced at Ace for a while, um, and then worked at uh, Capital Sports Network, which was Mark Garrow's uh, uh, production for, for a bit as well on the, the Goodies Dash series and such. But I want to skip ahead because in, in the mid-90s, you spent – about five or six years, uh, from 96 to 2002, actually, working for Richard Childress Racing. I want to talk a little bit about that um, because, obviously, those were mostly great years for RCR. What led you from kind of the marketing and media side um, over into the team side to work for Richard Childress Racing? How'd that come about? Well, the transition point actually does start at Rockingham and what the good things that we were able to do and people we were able to, to meet and show that we could participate um, at the, the cup level. Uh, Rockingham was a great place to learn and be mentored by folks that had been there before there was a NASCAR and before there was an even a track at Rockingham or most anywhere but Darlington and maybe Daytona. Uh, these were LG DeWitt, Frank Wilson, uh, Wayne Loudermilk, uh, all the, the management and the bosses there, Herman Hickman, that um, you know had really helped build the sport when it was really tough and it was really not uh, any big money in it, even before Winston came in there and getting to, to associate with um, with T. Wayne Robertson from Winston and and so many of those things, get to meet Bill Jr., um, all that around me. And we had Goodwrench as one of our sponsors of our races. Ah, and they sponsored the uh, that black three car that ended up working with it at Childress with our driver, Dale Earnhardt. And um, as vice president, I had kind of peeked out as where I was going to go at Rockingham. They had people that uh, were going to be able to be there for another 10 or 15 years in those spots at that time. And uh, it was time to start kind of nudging around and seeing if anything was out there. Well, at the same time, I guess Childress was looking to expand to what became the 31 and the Lowe's car and all. And those conversations meshed. And lo and behold, I'm sitting at the Waldorf in Childress's uh, hotel suite uh, before the banquet that night in uh, 95. And we're talking about going racing uh, together with Dale and everybody else. And he's looking for a vice president that's young and energetic to join Bill Patterson, who had been with him since the start. And Webster Swicegood, you know, a couple of the veterans there at RCR that were in his core group. And uh, I got the nod to do that. And um, I'll tell you, it was uh, an amazing six years, best six years any gift of motorsports could ever give. The heyday of souvenirs, the heyday of, you know, the big crowds and the giant new stadiums being opened up. And then, you know, 01 comes and uh, things just dramatically changed for everybody, including me. We're talking with PRN's at the track host, Lenny Baticki, on this episode of the Tom Baker Show. Um, when when you started at RCR, what were your first impressions of, first of all, what exactly was your role when you started there? I, I mean, vice president could mean a lot of things. And, and talk about working with Dale a little bit in those early years. How much contact did you have and, and sort of, you know, 
how how much did you spend actually working with him? One one of the big things I used to say was the less I touch the race car, the faster it'll go. <laughs> Me so, too. <laughs> you know, touching the car, uh, maybe and pushing it for a photo shoot, we would be doing for a sponsor or whatever. The job really developed. I don't know that Richard really had much of a great idea. He just knew he needed another uh, motorsports minded person that he could trust. And okay. good wrench was telling him, this is a guy we work with at Rockingham. Well, uh, you know, he'd be the one that you could figure out how to, work with and help grow your company and the the job developed uh i i had little extra titles to the vice president of operations sometimes i had them uh for licensing things like that but the job really started to uh come to focus in maybe two areas in um the sponsorship um acquisition uh, whether it was Bass Pro, which uh, I can remember going and sitting in front of Johnny Morris and pulling that deal together. Uh, they had never been in the sport before, had been approached by everybody before. But we came in with a pitch that um, we had some extra influence from Realtree on. They gave us the uh, kind of that nod that this guy's OK. He means what he's saying and he'll do what he's saying and probably more. Uh, Akuma. um you know, I remember getting the first laptop for Richard Childress Racing from Hewlett Packard. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, people thinking, wow, that's so great. You got a laptop. <laughs> you know, wow, look at this thing. We could take it to the racetrack with us. You're um, dating yourself you know, now, Lenny. Sir? You're dating yourself. Oh, man. We yes. weren't supposed uh, to tell anybody you, you know, were old. I remember at, at Rockingham, uh, you know, my, my desktop could get email and i thought oh i have been, i'm at the big time now i can get email <laughs> but uh you know back in uh, the children's days we were apart with ben geisler and and bill patterson and in, you talk about dating bringing aol to uh children's right there uh, at the end of 2000 yeah. 2001 and uh, that was going to be harvick's deal and it ended up different because of uh, the february event but the other thing that i think I see a lot of still besides the logos on the cars is the licensing we did. And you talk about dealing with Dale Earnhardt. Um, I had to deal with Teresa and dealing with Teresa over Dale's image and the image of souvenirs we did. Um, I really grew to respect her, her vision of what she wanted and the, the strictness of it because it really helped build that brand and Don Hawk and Joe Mattis, who's over at Junior Motorsports now, the things I learned from them about uh, contracting and channels of distribution and things like that, this was the heyday of souvenirs. We could just slap our logos on stuff, and if we had wanted to be that way, made money off of junk. But there was a, a feeling and esprit de corps of bring quality, keep things at a high level, and make them really the fans feel like they have an item that is very special uh, for them and to them and anybody that would see them having it or wearing it or whatever. And uh, those were two really big factors from, say, 97 to 2000 that um, in those years we focused on. Plus, I got to uh, help us go to uh, Japan. Lakey Cornelius, our operator, our parts manager, uh, got the cars and everything, the logistics for those vehicles going on the ships and having them go over to Japan while I got to make sure that everybody had a passport and everybody had a hotel and everybody had a plane ticket and everybody had all those 
uh, things to go internationally and that we weren't going to cause an international incident and everything like that. Um, those were fun, fun times to um, be a part of all of the things. And I've got you know, friendships with crew members and Childress and everything to this day, Don Hoff, all those guys that, um, you know, we had rocky, rough times like any business would. But, um, you know, it was very special to be a part of Richard Childress Racing. And my time with Dale, Dale was DEI, driver of the Richard Childress Racing car. So, you know, we'd see Dale on the weekends. We'd see Dale when he came to the seat fittings. I'd see Dale at, at big events and stuff. And I always knew if Dale was poking at me, prodding at me, uh, that he was actually pretty happy with me. If he was silent and went the other way in a room, I was like, oh, man, I, I don't know what, what they told him, but I, I guess he's mad at me this week. And, um, From what but I he hear, was that's... great in his vision for how much he cared for sponsors. If we got into a meeting about sponsors, Dale not only would talk about how he would fulfill his part, he would talk about how it could be better with you know, joining ideas. And making sure that no matter which sponsor he had, he would defend them like a, a, a mother would defend their cub. A mother bear would defend their cub. And so many other things. I loved just listening to him. I didn't need him to you know, want to chum me around and take me to the hunting stand and stuff. I was in awe because he was so much bigger in real life as a guy that I got to sit with and talk with and have a meal or two with. He was everything I think I've ever read about how cool he was. He was that and probably double that more. That's awesome. I mean, that's a, that's fun stuff. I mean, working with Dale, working with Richard, we'll get back to Dale in a minute, but I want to fast forward to Richard for a second, because I believe that there's probably a lot of things about Richard, a lot of stories about Richard that could be just great stories. And I'm pretty sure that as VP of the company, you must have been in on at least one or two of them that you can share with us. So talk about what your relationship with Richard was like and and what is Richard like as a person and to work for? Just absolutely an amazing guy. And for the roots that he came from as a kid that jumped the fence to go into Bowman Gray Stadium, and get caught and then have begged to stay by selling programs because he just loved racing so much and to uh in his teen years to actually befriend a little kid named bill france jr and to uh, get into scrapes and such and then build a multi-million dollar legendary business um those were some of the things that when you saw richard you could see even through the day when we would go to lunch and i went with rc for a number of years, probably two to three days a week, we would go to lunch. And it didn't matter who we had with us. Uh, Childress always picked up the check, at, you know, the little diners and stuff around welcome. But as we were walking out the door, if there were plumbers that had worked on his house, painters that he knew from, you know, some other thing, um, it would either be him personally picking up their checks or on the way out, he'd say, go over there and get their check. And just being a man that never forgot the littlest guy that helped him and that little lunch ticket that uh, he may have picked up for us, uh, you know, in, on the cup side wasn't, was always neat and appreciated, but uh, you could see the glow on some of the, uh, the folks face. Wow. And if there was a little kid in the building, somebody wanted to get an autograph, 
Richard would come up to him like he would at any race and have that swagger that only Richard Childress has, but then be right down there with a the little guy or gal and make sure that they got the autograph and talk about their papa or their mama and just, you know, really be the guy that, um, that I just enjoyed and was honored to work with uh, as much as I did. Um, so it was really, really a, a pleasure. Well, you know, and he just seems so genuine in general. Like Richard just really strikes me as a very humble, very genuine person um, who really does care about, you know, the sport and care about people around him and the people that work for him. I've heard from two or three of his sponsors that uh, they just they they love being a part of RCR and um that just is uh that's a great reflection now did did you spend much time away from the track with richard i mean was there a friendship that kind of went beyond the uh the the scope of the work or not so much uh yeah i would say um you know not only at at the racetrack i i didn't go but maybe 12 15 races a year so i spent the bulk of my work days uh, in the uh, my office was right next to Richard's, so we oh, wow. would see each other for hours each day, and and you know talk about regular things, and you know talk about uh, you know no matter what. In fact, nine uh, eleven, I stood in Richard's office that morning and watched those planes go into those buildings in Richard Childress's office on his wow. little TV right there. It was still surreal. Whenever the you know September eleventh comes around, I'm right back in that office. And thinking of our guys that were testing, I believe, in St. Louis. And I think we had another team at the wind tunnel and trying to figure out how later that day, how we were going to get them back with no planes flying in the air. But, uh, you know, got to go uh, try to fly fish with Richard in Montana once. And that was a disaster on my part. <laughs> you couldn't um, catch flies, could you? you? <laughs> know, um, driving with Richard is a, is a whole different experience. Um, Richard was a NASCAR cup racer and, and a decent driver and you know, probably could have done better with more money, right. but, um, on the roads, he definitely wins a lot of races cause he's you know, foot down, hammer down, got to go from here to there. And, um, way before cell phones were not supposed to be used, uh, while you were driving, uh, Richard had perfected the art and still went fast. So <laughs> <laughs> those were always white knuckle rides wherever we would go. And uh, a funny one uh, about being a slappy, if you will, to go back to to that. So I'm I'm with Childress and we're having to go every now and then for autograph sessions in, you know, different places around the country. So we would fly in on the plane together and get out on the plane together and get the car together. And I remember one time I'm driving and I got lost. He is just fully upset. And then he starts playing with me about it. So he, he's like, why didn't you pre-run this course? You should know where we're going, Batiki. And I'm like, I flew in with you. I didn't have any time to pre-run it. And he's laughing. He he knew that, you know, there was no way I could have done anything different, but he just wanted to rub it in that I was lost and, uh, you know, I should have found some better way to do it. That's funny. Yeah, and again, that just, that from from outward appearances, that seems like the kind of a guy that Richard would be, and, and I, I think it reflects in his family, too, and even, you know, uh, I think Austin and Ty are, are just terrific 
young men, and, and I, I'm happy for the success that they've had uh, and the opportunities they've had. I haven't uh, had much you know, contact with them since they were in uh, their development days running late models on pavement and dirt, but, um, you know, watching them grow up in the way that, uh, you know, Austin obviously has uh, had some wins and some big wins in, in, in cup and, um, you know, but those were the days, uh, back in the period that you worked for Richard. Uh, I'm curious though, uh, a couple things. First off, uh, I know you got to have at least one or two funny Dale stories. I mean, I, I, it seems to me the more people that I talked to that interacted with him on a regular basis, the more um, I realized that nobody spends a lot of time with Dale or nobody spent a lot of time with Dale without um, walking away with some uh, interesting memories that they carried from it. Well, I think the biggest Dale interactions were, were twofold. I remember uh, going to Japan the first year, and Mike Skinner and I got to the breakfast tent. They fed us in a tent, uh, and every meal you had, no matter whether it was scrambled eggs in the morning or cheeseburgers in the afternoon or whatever they gave us uh, for dinner, had French fries. You got the fresh ones <laughs> in the morning, got the sort of fresh ones at lunch, and by dinner you'd had enough. But uh, this was one of the first or second morning Skinner and I were there, and I was uh, focused on that event, helping the 31 team, so Mike and I had, had kind of you know, gone over together. We were talking about things. And all of a sudden, Dale sits down with both of us. And he could have sat anywhere in the building and sat down with both of us and talked to, to me and Mike and, and shared our, our, you know, our travel stories and things like that, just like it was wow. nothing. He was one of the guys that moment. And just the fact of watching him decide, this is where I'm going to be, and sitting down and not asking us if he could sit there, but just politely coming to sit with us as three guys at a track together, uh, one of the most special moments. The other special moment is really uh, personal, but in a fun way you could share. Uh, I would stand at the back of the three transporter a lot when I went to races because that's where I could interact with our, our sponsors and things like that, and the team could do their work inside and out, and then Dale would go out to the car. Well, I, I knew I was in Dale's good graces if Dale came by and no matter whether I was talking to a sponsor, a fan, whatever, but he would grab my waist and twist the living heck out of whatever skin <laughs> he could grab to just kind of gig me. If he did that, I, I knew I was stinging, but I also knew I was okay with him. When he would just walk by, I would always hope, oh, I hope he's just in a hurry to go and not mad at me. It's funny how Dale was like that because, again, you hear a lot of stories. I mean, Steve Park always tells the story about when he came down to drive the one car and he was he would he would he stayed with Dale and he would ride in the truck around Dale's farm or whatever. And Dale would point things out. Steve would say nothing was ever on Dale's side of the truck. <laughs> you know, he always <laughs> got the big arms swinging into the, you know, into the, into Steve's chest pointing, you know, look at, and, uh, and, and I can remember, um, different people telling similar stories, um, like that as, as well, you know, about how Dale would, would, you know, playfully deal with them and he had a really uh he had a really engaging way about him when he wasn't you know in his race mode um and once he got into the car that was his office and and so there were kind of a number of different personas it feels like that dale had depending on what he was doing which is um you know again all of them 
you know, purpose built, so to speak, to to maximize the effect of a moment. He really did. He understood that, um, you know, one of the things I learned that's a pretty simple technique that he had, but one that, you know, is is either devastating if it goes wrong or, um, you know, he, he just makes it so polite. If, uh, you know, we were a, a Chevrolet team, a Coke team, a Goodwrench team and stuff, and a lot of races would be sponsored or there'd be a banner from another company that right. would be a competitor. Competing. But yep. Dale always had photographers around him shooting. Well, if he would go and it was clear that there was a competitive uh, banner behind him, um, you know, he'd just start kind of rubbing his eyes, rubbing his nose, doing something that would just make that moment not work for the picture, but wouldn't insult the photographer's <laughs> professionalism or whatever. And then as soon as he cleared it, he'd have it down so that they could take a great shot. But he understood the background around him could affect what he and his brand and his image and the things and the goals of the people that supported and invested him were in those subtle ways. But he also respected those photographers and he never you know, had to pause in between that transition. And I always thought that was just one of the smoothest, politest, most professional things I, I've ever seen somebody do rather than say, oh, don't take my picture in front of this or that. He was never that way. He, he knew that those photographers needed to be there. That was their career. And that, you know, he also knew that he didn't need to take a picture in front of, uh, you know, a non-brand that, uh, you know, would be a conflict to uh, somebody else. Talking with Lenny Batiki today on the Tom Baker Show. Lenny is the host of PRN's At the Track on the Performance Racing Network and uh, a variety of radio and digital platforms uh, nationwide. And talking about Dale Earnhardt and uh, Lenny's time as the vice president of Richard Childress Racing back in the 90s. a position that you held through 2002, which means that uh, you were a part of um, what what I think we we could both agree, and I think probably every listener that is listening to this show uh, would agree was one of the most tragic days, if not the darkest day in NASCAR history, um, February 15, 2001, uh, the Daytona 500. And Lenny, I'm I'm curious just what your perspective was because again as a part of the team you know you're in the infield and in the garage area and you're kind of doing your thing um you know i was i was a uh, uh, in media but not here in the carolinas at that time i was watching the race on tv like everybody else it's fox's big debut um you know there's all this energy all this excitement and you got dei that that's kind of you know that played such a featured role in that race so dale was kind of uh um multi-faceted at that point owning one team driving for your team richard childress racing that you worked for um you know what do you remember about that day i remember the uh last lap and i remember we had the big screen behind our pit or it was you know, close enough that it felt like it was behind us. So uh, one of those uh, big screens that they had up back in the day and uh, watched the the contact. Now, I had been there during the years when we flipped over. I'd been in the years when Dale Jarrett passed us on the last lap. I actually wasn't at the track all day. The day we won the 500, I had to leave early. Right. So I missed the, the really good one. Um, but I'd been there enough to where 
you know, uh, we needed to come out of Daytona with the momentum. So as as we're starting to bounce around, I mean, I see Superman all, all the time. Uh, you know, okay, he's going to you know ding the car up. He's going to fade back. And I want to say there were 12 or 13 cars on the lead lap. So I see the contact and the first thing starting to happen. And I pop my headset off because I know now there's really not going to be any other conversation. This is going to be, uh, you know, a, a tow it in type, type day. And we'll go to uh, Rockingham uh, in about 12th or 13th in points. We can dig out of that hole. It was a, a winter where we had a lot of things going right for us. He was really physically set to run strong that year. And I just started calculating points. I didn't need to hear, you know, I were on a wrecker and things like that. That would have been the norm. So I walked back by myself to the transporter and I thought, okay, well, here comes this car. Here comes that car. Where's our crew? I'm putting the radio away, getting ready to go. And I literally for about five minutes had no idea. I just thought we were going to be coming in and the car would be all greasy and, you know, people would be upset and the fabricators would have to be figuring out how they were going to work on it before we would go to Talladega or back for summer. Well, all of a sudden, you know, a couple of our guys are are coming back because they've got to do something. I I don't know what they were actually back there for. Maybe they came in from another part of the garage, but you could definitely tell that there was something, there was trauma, there was injury. um, There was a real problem with what had ever gone on. And, um, you know, it uh, it just never got any better from that moment on. Um, I was fortunate to have three or four more minutes maybe than a lot of people of uh, bliss because I, for whatever reason, took my headset off. But, uh, you know, after that, uh, we got on the plane that night because we had flown down with Danny Culler, uh, his spotter, and uh, David Hart, who's now the communications director or VP at Texas Motor Speedway, oh. and Megan Engelhardt, who is at uh, Fox, we're our communications department at RCR. And we, uh, we actually got the word on the tarmac that he had passed. And uh, the flight home, uh, we had to develop what we could uh, of what was going to you know, take place at least in the next five or six hours from a team perspective of how we would communicate and what we would do. We landed in Winston-Salem and immediately went to the shop. Uh, we knew there'd be a commotion there and, you know, it was just unbelievable by the time we got to the shop. Uh, the sheriff of Davidson County had the roads blocked. Uh, we had to show that we were RCR people. They knew us and scooted us in. And then uh, minutes later, uh, I came out of the um, uh, the museum then, which was a smaller part of what is now the G- giant museum at RCR. Yeah. Uh, I spoke, I want to say it was three sentences we had developed to thank and, and ask for prayers and comfort and turned around um, as I finished. I mean, exactly as I said the last word, the plan was always to never take questions. It was just really to share our heart. Uh, that moment. Right. And I turned around to walk back in and I can see it's rising the hair on the back of my neck. Now, the uh, questions from the reporters screaming at me wanting more. But we we were in no position to give more and we weren't going to give more even if we were tied up. We were yeah. just not. Um, we wanted to share our heart with our fans. Um, but that was just unbelievable. And then we just cried for a forever yeah. uh which you know i still feel like crying right now 
uh, about it after that. Uh, it, it just continued to be uh, the toughest year um, you know, after those days. Boy, it was too. And, and of course, then you were able to, Richard made the decision to keep going and put Kevin in the car and then, you know, the big win at Atlanta and, you know, and, and then it was, it was later that year, you mentioned it earlier in the show that nine eleven happened. And again, you know, the sport had to kind of endure a tragedy of a much larger uh, and more, widespread standpoint um it just uh the magnitude of that and the way that nascar and other sports dealt with it and were such an amazing part of kind of trying to lift the fans and the people out of it and provide a relief from what we were all feeling in our everyday lives at that point, um, just almost beyond words. I mean, it really was a, an unbelievable year uh, that year with tragedy and, and just so much heaviness, um, you know, and, and I think um, the sport in some ways has never recovered, but yet there are some ways too where I feel like it's just made it so much stronger. You know, there there are a lot of things different from now and then. And, you know, as a competitor or part of the competitive team, uh, you know, all competitors, uh, you know, will squawk about a sanction and things like that. But to get back uh, just really briefly to that week after Daytona, sure. um, NASCAR flew people in. They supported us. It's hard to even talk. I mean, just... They helped us. They they got us food. They did anything that week. And I could say a lot about, you know, rules and packages and everything else. But NASCAR was our family that, that came to us. And it was really cool. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, again, you know, we, we talk about it all the time as motorsports people, right, that, you know, people ask us all the time, you know, how can you how you watch cars going in a circle? Well, we, we know the people that are involved in those cars and, and, and in these races and, and they become family. And I've always said that, you know, when times are tough, it doesn't matter if you fought with that guy over there last week. If you need something or something is is or or they need something or, you know, when times are tough, the whole motorsports family pulls together. We've seen it time and time again. And there's a there's a great example, man. I can't even imagine how hard that was to deal with from the inside. And I appreciate your your candor about that. Um, And and uh, really the year that was in 2001. And again, I think obviously in some ways with safety and 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 you know things that we learned from that i think uh you know it was the sport was made a whole lot better but uh you know in in other ways obviously um you know it's just been it it you know again it's a different sport now uh than, than it, it was it is but let let me give you a couple of things here the yeah. when uh, now that i've got now that i'm not crying i'm just tearing up when uh when i see michael mcdowell's wreck I'll head on now and they come out of it almost instantly because they're wearing either a hybrid or a Hans device or something from that. I just know that what we lost families gained 
because of that. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people look at Dale for his greatness, but his greatest, you know, gift was that uh, he was important enough that people rallied around the idea that his should be the last passing of this if we can prevent it. So soft walls, Hans devices, yep. things of that nature, other cushions in the car that have come since. But those two in particular, and especially the head and neck restraint, if anybody's listening and you ever have your husband or wife uh, that's racing and you want to get them something, it's not about sponsor this, get tires, get more horsepower, make sure they have a head and neck restraint. It's yeah. the best investment uh, that can be. And it always goes back to uh, to Dale and, and the things that we we lost that day, they will be safer in the hands. Um, but to transition to a brighter moment, I, I also thought of one of one of the more funny Dale stories. If you do want to hear oh, one, yeah, absolutely. To maybe lift us back yeah. up. Go ahead. Peter Max, Peter Max car. One of the ones that always uh, makes people roll their eyes about that uh, we had back in the licensing days and uh, in the in the 90s. So we had that car, obviously, months ahead, the graphics and things like that. And now we got to show the graphic package to Dale because if Dale don't want to drive it, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to do right. it. Well, Peter Max is a global icon from the 60s, and his art is revered uh, in those channels. Well, Max himself comes out, and he's in our conference room at RCR, and me and the other VPs are just about taking bets at how long Richard, how long Dale will stay when he sees the car graphic, because um, he's coming <laughs> in on the helicopter and going to, you know, give his final blessing to this. So sure enough, we hear the helicopter; it lands. He he comes over to the uh, the room, opens the door, and we're just waiting. Is it going to be ten seconds? You know, a minute. How long politely is he going to stay before he leaves? And he doesn't even get two steps in the door. And he's rushing for Max going, oh, Teresa and I love you. We love your work. <laughs> and we're like, huh? We thought this would never go. And he liked what Peter did as a as a fan. That's awesome. Yeah, we were blown away. And, uh, you know, the car to this day is, is really special to me from from that perspective of that moment when he walked in the door and blew our socks off. That's funny. Uh, just knowing who Peter Max was, much less saying how much they liked his work. Wow. Yeah, that there again, uh, you know, there were many sides to Dale and, you know, it's uh, it's it's fun to look back and, and recall those. And I, and I love listening to Junior talk about him and other people talk about him because, um, it really gives you a sense that there was far more to Dale than what those of us who were just fans who saw him on Sundays on the race broadcasts really knew. And, uh, you know, it's stuff like that, stories like that, that just, uh, you know, just uh, proves that point. And that's that's great stuff. Well, uh, you've I mean, you went through uh, I mean, you, you worked again, PR, doing a lot of different things, consulting, uh, worked for Spire for a bit and and. Uh, um, you know, director of communications for a few years for Charlotte Motor Speedway, and now you're just uh, you're 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 just kind of nestled in uh, hosting PRNs at the track and doing that a couple of times a week now. Um, how did that show come about quickly? And uh, you're doing two shows a week, but they're kind of focused on different regions. The, um, the happening was a uh, I was a part of the big screen announcing, like I still am, 
at Charlotte. And Marcus had uh, communicated word through channels that he wanted to sport grassroots racing and rebond uh, the, the fan at those tracks to what we did at Charlotte. And we were also having a, a big loss in communication between when a uh, legend racer would race with us for three or four years of the summer shootout and then virtually disappear until they became a truck series racer. And, you know, he thought that that needed to have some kind of communications point between legends and trucks. And that was the grassroots where they were going and, you know, doing great things. So a note or, you know, word came down, could you do a radio show about grassroots? And it started from there. We did one only based on the Southeast. And as that popularity became uh, evident, uh, stations in Pennsylvania and Indiana, Ohio, Iowa, Kentucky, uh, they all, you know, were, were asking about it and had great grassroots tracks, whether it was Lernerville, Eldora, I-55, down to, you know, smaller tracks that are up there. So instead of trying to just add them to a Southeast show that would be talking about Cherokee in one breath and trying to do a, a service to I-55 in Missouri to the other, we just kind of cut the, that region in half and where the Appalachians go we're Southeast and Mid-America, and we, we're a people show about the people of racing. I right. don't try to uh, do kind of the same things that others do. Uh, we're not very, very much news-oriented. We're not very much, uh, you know, what parts and pieces did you use-oriented. I want to know what the, the person, you know, who that is, who they, they were, and how, how they've developed into the person that won that race what their family background is like. Are they a first, second, third, fourth generation in some cases? Yeah. Um, we're proud to have had already 90 different females on. That's a radio record uh, for a non-female-focused syndicated broadcast radio show. I have to say all those things, but that category <laughs> uh, we're blessed to be the leader in. Um, and... You know, just so many different things. We've had over a thousand different guests ranging in age from eight-year-old Colt Johnson back when he was scooting around at a bando to uh, Ken Squire, who was 88 or 89 when he was on. So uh, pretty wide, pretty broad, and um, just a, a fun show to learn about people of the sport we like, whether it's drivers, promoters, crew members. We've had uh, just a host of different folks on. And your shows are they're short, relatively speaking. So when you're doing your interviews, it's basically you're looking for a good six or seven minutes. And it's that's interesting sometimes, I feel like, with people, especially people like me who talk in paragraphs. Uh, and, you, <laughs> and you and I share that. How do you kind of... Uh, how do you kind of put that together and get uh, what you want out of each guest in such a short amount of time? Well, I try to tell them ahead of time, this is going to be about like hot lap qualifying. You're going to come out of the pits <laughs> and you better be full throttle yeah. and it'll be over with before you know it. And then I have to be, you know, maybe politely rude to uh, jump into those folks that want to talk in a paragraph uh, because I, I try to get the point of what I'm really curious in these interviews for the most part are, man, I'm, I've never spoke to that person or I spoke to him years ago and now they developed into something more. I'm just curious as a, as a person, uh, as to what this other person in the business that you and I love is up to and, and what was it like doing whatever they did right. or are about to do 
you know, you, you're a promoter and you put up a big banner saying this is going to be the, the, you know, Barnum and Bailey time and things like that. Well, I want to hear about it. I'm not, I want to show up myself or have friends in your area that I want to tell, get out there. So we, we try to, um, look at it from the fans sitting on the back of a pickup when this guest would walk by after doing whatever they did at the racetrack and that fan saying, Hey bud, what did it feel like? How cool was it? You know, um, what did you get, uh, you know, what made this special for you and let them just tell their story of the experience. And that is shared across all sports, all people, all human existence. What was it like to battle of traffic, to get to work, to battle, uh, to get home and only have to go back around because you had to take the kids to the ball game, had to go to the grocery store, had yeah. to come back, everything like that. The challenges that we all face are the same. And I just want to hear it from the motorsports side of what those human experiences felt like in the context of what you and I like as a as a as a sport. Lenny's also uh, the voice or one of the voices of the Bojangles summer shootout at Charlotte, uh, not to mention um, also behind the microphone for the NASCAR events there and uh, a lot of other places, too. Um, how many racetracks a year? uh do you get to on average well with covid we only got about 40 last year but we're usually between 50 and 60 tracks a year that we like to get out to and show some support whether they're racing that day or whether they're just doing a, a documentary piece so to speak for our internet listeners about the subtleties of a racetrack we see so that folks can experience them through uh, our social media we're very active on twitter enormously active on twitter prn's at the track on twitter our facebook page has collections of all the photos we take uh throughout any race week and our instagram page really try to get it boiled down to the 10 ones that i feel have some kind of energy in them that i experienced over the weekend that we really want to share through the the artsiness of instagram Awesome. Yeah, you uh, definitely keep busy, that's for sure. And uh, we are always grateful to have a chance to sit down and talk with you, uh, Lenny. Uh, certainly one of my influences uh, in this area and uh, somebody that I uh, really respect and appreciate. And it, uh, it's great to have you on, buddy. And I uh, hope that you enjoyed talking with us on the Tom Baker Show today and look forward to at some point down the road, we'll get you back on again. Well, Tom Baker, I, I'm excited that I got to do this. And uh, the only thing that was a problem is now you've got the Tom Baker show. That's going to peel another hour out of my day to uh, listen to what you've got each <laughs> week. Because your appointment listening, you bring out great stories. And um, I just uh, am tickled for this opportunity to be on, but really to have you provide some more insight to all these listeners that will be doing it and uh, having sponsors like mycomputercareer.com on I mean, they have they have chosen the right guy to pitch their stuff. And uh, you're a super mentor to so many young ones and their mentoring of uh, folks wanting computer careers. I'm sure will uh, will mirror what your greatness does for so many young people in motorsports. Thank you, buddy. And we'll talk to you again soon. That is Lenny Batiki.
I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lenny Baticki as much as I did. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Tom Baker Show. It has been brought to you by mycomputercareer.edu, training for a better life. And we appreciate you listening to the show. Look forward to the next episode of the Tom Baker Show. Until then, I'm Tom Baker. So long. You've been listening to the Tom Baker Show.